The congregation, please open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Continuing on in our exposition, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this afternoon. Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee for the service thus far. Lord, we ask Thou wouldst bless the reading and hearing of Thy Word, the singing of praises unto Thee to our hearts. Increase our faith, O Lord. Now we come to the preaching and hearing of Thy Word. Lord, I ask for Thy help. Lord, help these, thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, to hear thy word, to obey it, to love thee more through it, to walk in closer communion with thee. Holy Spirit, we need thee. We need thee. Send us not on a fool's errand. Do not leave us to our own devices. But apply thy word which thou hast inspired to our hearts as it is preached. Remind us, O Lord, of the reality and the weightiness of eternity, of salvation, the great joy, the great wonder. Let us stand in awe that we, such sinful people, could be counted among thy children, to be redeemed by thy Son, Lord Jesus. We thank thee that thou wouldst go to Calvary's tree for us. Thou wouldst pay the price for our sins, our transgressions, to drink down the wrath of thy Father against us, even to its dregs. that thou mayest have us again. Therefore, let us be thine, wholly resigned to thy will, trusting in thee. The more we see our sin, the more conviction that thou bringest to us by thy spirit, let us see it as a great blessing, for it is. For we see our need of thee. Help us to see Thee as a sufficient, loving, merciful, and powerful Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And He, being Jesus, went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, 
that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. The title of our sermon is Jesus Came to Call Sinners. Dear congregation, it is hard to say which has done more for the propagation of the truth, its friends or its foes. In the Gospels, we see that some of Christ's most clear and powerful presentations of gospel truths came as answers to the disputations and misrepresentations that his enemies brought to him. Let us remember that times of widespread apostasy and false teaching, like the time we live in now, actually present us with grand opportunities to state the truth clearly, to give clear proclamations of the simple truths contained in the gospel. In our day, when many professing Christians are bowing to the false works-based gospel of social justice, which is no gospel at all, we can stand apart from them, apart from them in our preaching of the clear gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. Now this message, the message of free grace in Jesus Christ, is easy to be bold for when you think about it. Because it's not our message. It's his. It's Christ's. We simply repeat it. Therefore, we can boldly testify that such men, people that are teaching these false Gospels are adding something to the gospel, stand condemned. We can be bold in saying that. Because they are walking not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, as Paul said to Peter in Galatians 2.14. Dear Christian, we must not leave off bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. When we take up our office as preacher, we are imitating and standing in continuity with our Lord Jesus Christ, who was first and foremost a preacher. He was an itinerant preacher, first and foremost. The gospel records are full with Christ working wonders, doing miracles, casting out demons. But these are always sandwiched between words like we find today in our text, in verse 13. And he went forth again, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And we've seen this even in the Gospel of Mark thus far. Teaching, miracle. Teaching, miracle. Teaching, miracle. In the previous passage, Jesus had demonstrated his authority, his right, his ability, his power to forgive sins by healing the man. And in the passage before us, he displays that his very purpose in coming to earth, his mission was in fact to call sinners to repentance and faith. Great texts 
like the one before us today, for the preacher are both the easiest and the most difficult to preach upon. It's hard to decide which. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It preaches itself, so what does one say? On the one hand, its profound simplicity is easy enough for a child to understand. And on the other hand, the greatest thinker in the world can never exhaust its immense depths. In a time like the one which we live in, our current day, it is easy to be pessimistic. It really is. The level of deception, the zeitgeist of the age that has blinded the minds of people, the wickedness, the level of wickedness that we see. Indeed, it feels overwhelming. It feels hopeless sometimes. But this is not the mindset of Christians. He's not given us a spirit of fear. The gospel of Jesus Christ will have victory over rebellious men. This gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 And as the power of God unto salvation, it could convert an entire nation in less than an hour. I read my Bible every day. And I try to read it carefully. In my many years of reading through the scriptures, I have never read that Christ will fail to gather his elect. I have never read of a neutered gospel in the scriptures' pages. The power of the gospel lies in its simplicity. It is the salvation of all who believe. And God can grant that belief to any and as many as he chooses. This is why, dear congregation, we must be careful not to add anything, anything, to this precious and simple gospel. If we hold to it steadfastly, if we declare it with simplicity and singleness of mind, it shall work powerfully in both us and the world around us. This is why Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 Do we have another hope? Is there another place, another person who has the words of eternal life? I know of none. In our text, we notice three points. First, the calling of Matthew, or Levi. Matthew, the calling of Matthew. Secondly, the response of the self-righteous. And number three, Christ's mission statement. First, the calling of Matthew. Levi is his other name. They're the same person, Levi and Matthew. Matthew was his more common name. Levi was the name he was known by people that weren't as close to him. And it's interesting that in his, in his gospel, in Matthew's gospel, he says who he is. I'm Matthew. I use my common name. Unashamed with all of his faults, all of his sins. 
Mark tries to be a little bit more discreet. Call him Levi. We notice a few things about this calling of Matthew. That he was a tax collector, a chief sinner. Of the many despised dregs of Jewish society, tax collectors were likely the most hated. They were viewed as singular betrayers of their own people, collecting taxes for the Roman rulers that were ruling over them. And they were always sure to collect a little more than they were required to take. They were not only traitors, but thieves among their own countrymen. Now, it takes a very wicked heart to betray one's own kinsfolk, but to add insult to injury through theft of the same requires another level of depravity hard to imagine. If the Christ, this is the Jewish mindset, if the Christ was to appear among his people, surely he would not count tax collectors among his ranks. Now we may know people of whom we think similar thoughts. This person shall never come to Christ, we might think. I would expect anyone to come to Christ, to become a Christian before this person. I was such a one as this. I was such a one. The men who led me to Christ saw me as a lost cause. Outside of a surprising miracle, I should never be a Christian. They were right. But it was the Calvinists among that group who urged the others to continue in prayer for me. And those who were not Calvinists certainly offered up a Calvinistic prayer for my salvation. Lord, open his eyes. O oh God, make him a Christian. Your pastor, who serves among you, was once a Matthew. Was once one who it was inconceivable that he could be saved. An unlikely recipient of God's free grace in Christ Jesus. Dear congregation, while there is breath in the lungs of those whom you are ministering to, do not give up on them. They too may one day stand as memorials to Jesus, as signposts to Jesus. They are no less likely to be saved than any other. It is just as probable for one dead man to stand up and walk as another. Now, Matthew was not only a witness and preacher of Christ, but he was also a proof and an illustration of the grace exhibited in Christ. So too are all believers. All of us who are believers in this room are not only ministers and preachers of the truth of Christ, but we stand as illustrations of his grace and his mercy. Jesus, if you look through the scriptures and you look through church history, you will see that Jesus loves to take chief sinners and make them his greatest saints. He that is forgiven much will love Jesus much. Remember Christ's parable of the two debtors in Luke 7, verses 41 through 43. He says, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, 
he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Thou hast rightly judged. Those of us who know just how much we have been forgiven, even on a daily basis, a recurring basis, know what love we owe to Christ. And in fact, it flows naturally out of a heart that is forgiven and realizes how much it is forgiven. Now, in calling someone as lowly, as despised as Matthew, Jesus truly proves what Paul says, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Dear Christian, are you still willing to be made a fool for Christ? You once were when you first believed. Will you still? Will you still follow your master, your savior, your God, and proclaim the foolishness of the cross to a dying world? If you remember how much you've been forgiven, you will see what a joy it is to serve him whom you love most in such a way. For it is only this foolish gospel, this foolish proclamation, that is intended to confound the self-wise. It is only this gospel that is powerful to save. It's not being clever. It's not making programs. It's not counseling. It's not teaching doctrine. No, it's the gospel alone that has power to save, has power to regenerate, power to transform, to make a new creation in Christ Jesus. Next, notice Christ's call to Matthew. He says, follow me. Follow me. Matthew was sitting at his tax booth, the receipt of custom. He was sitting in his iniquity, continuing on in his sin, betraying his people, thieving from them. He was dead in his trespasses. He was dead in his sins. He might as well have been laying in a grave than sitting in a tax booth, unable and unwilling to come after Christ. Surely he had heard of Christ before this. Yet, at the hearing of Christ's word himself, he, against all probability, rises up and he follows Christ. Matthew truly stands as an example of sovereign, free, undeserved grace. He is a testimony to the but God of Ephesians 2.4. He did not seek out Christ. He did not get up from his tax booth and go find Jesus and say, will you ask me to follow you? No. Christ sought him. Jesus always seeks his sheep. He always gathers his elect unto him. He does not work against their evil will. Their will The natural man's will desires to reject Christ, to turn against God, to continue in sin. And God never goes against somebody's will. Rather, he makes them willing in the day of his salvation. He makes them willing. Matthew 
did not remain in his sin either. We see that he left it off. He, he arose and followed. He left off his sinful employment. He rose and he followed Jesus. Now, dear believer, dost, that, dost thou not recall that thou once sat at thine own tax booth? Though he knew not the refrain that we know, now Matthew's heart can sing as well as thine, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, and sin, and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's of sovereign grace. God's electing love, freely given. Matthew not only followed, but we see right after this, he went on to call a feast in his home where many publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, verse 15. Let us also remember, dear congregation, that our Jesus, our sweet Savior Jesus, is the Jesus of sinners. It would have been an astounding measure of grace when we look at the light of our sin. We see that it would have been an astounding Measure of grace if he had only sent us to hell for a little while and then let us out. It would have been an inconceivable grace if he would have simply created a place for us to dwell that was out of his presence. It would have been unthinkable grace had he made us as the angels in heaven to be his servants in his courts. But through the work of Christ, he hath made us to be his own children who sit at his table. What grace, what love is this, what mercy. But not all who were present at this feast, which the evangelist Matthew called. Not all of them saw this as mercy, as grace. Some of them stumbled at the mercy of God manifested in Christ Jesus. That brings us to our second point. The response of the self-righteous. In verse 16, we read, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? As legalists, the Pharisees who added to God's word, they were fault finders. Even, like in the case of Christ, when there was no fault to be found at all, they still found faults. They were correct that Christ should come, but they were in error as to why he came. They assumed he came to create a powerful earthly kingdom and to sit as a ruler over it. That Christ came to exalt the highly exalted among them to an even higher place. That's what they thought. They didn't realize that he had rather come to Raise up the humble and the downcast who believe upon him. The Pharisees and the scribes here judged according to their man-made traditions and the doctrines of men rather than the truth of God. They set aside the word of God for vapid heresies. They strained out the gnat of imperfect practice and swallowed down the camel of false doctrine. It is usually men who talk the most about the need for holiness and all of the rules that go into it who need 
to heed their own words the most. Those who are most set on the letter of the law usually obey it the least. These Pharisees sitting at this feast were watchers rather than doers. And Jesus said to the Pharisees at another time in Luke eleven forty six, Ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burden with one of your fingers. They were willing to pile it on, but willing to do nothing. They were watchers and not doers. Remember when the prostitute anointed Christ with the costly oil of gladness. When she kissed his feet with the kisses of love and washed his feet with the tears of repentance and wiped them with the humility of her hair. The Pharisees sat back doing nothing but scoffing. Nothing but scoffing. Matthew forsook his sin and followed Jesus. And he immediately began to engage in the work of evangelization and charity. The Pharisees also followed Jesus to this home, did they not? But only to find fault. Only to find fault. A wicked heart, dear believer, will always find fault in Christ's doctrine. Many of you have declared to someone, maybe another Christian believer or a non-believer, you've told them about the free electing grace of God, and the only response you have received is, that's unfair. That makes God quite evil. Free grace is always hated by the hateful. Free grace is always hated by the hateful. The Pharisees found wickedness in the holiness of Jesus because they were wicked. Because they were wicked. Remember, Jesus told a parable about the laborers. The first getting paid the exact same amount as the last. All throughout this day, he hires more and more laborers, beginning early in the day and ending late before the harvest was over. And he sent them out to his harvest. And each one, he agreed to pay the same. The first, when they came to get paid, those who had borne the heat of the day the longest and worked the longest, began to grumble. They began to grumble against the master who had hired them. To which this master responded, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? It's Matthew 20, verse 15. You see, the Pharisees had an evil eye to Christ's goodness. They had an evil eye to Christ's goodness. Dear Christian, beware and search out in thyself to see if there be an evil eye in thee. Always rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ, both to yourself and to others, toward all sinners. Do not grumble. Notice also their accusation of Christ, what the Pharisees said. They see him sitting with publicans and sinners, tax collectors, and other notorious sinners. After calling Matthew, what do they say? How is it? How can it be that he does this? The Pharisees were not spiritual. They were unconverted. They were carnal. And therefore, they could not understand what Jesus was doing. The prideful and the self-righteous soul never rejoices in Christ's mercy towards others. It hath a jealous and naughty heart, as Matthew Henry said. 
Such a soul says something like this. I know that I am a sinner saved by grace, but not like that person. They are so very bad. They are so very inconsistent in their Christian profession. They are so prone to temptation and to failing. How can they sit there in church? How can they stand there and hold the Psalter and sing? How can they read the scriptures and pray when they are so sinful? I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like other men. That's what such a soul says in its heart. It is the kind of heart that hears a sermon and thinks, well, I know this all very, very well indeed. But I do hope that so-and-so is listening. This is a great word for them. Or they might say something like this. The content is well and good, but I know the pastor. I know his weaknesses. I know his sinfulness. He would do well to heed the word himself. This may be true. But I take heart as a pastor that even my Jesus, who was perfect, unlike me, and always was also accused of sin, and his sermons were excused and dismissed by the self-righteous. But again, we even do the same thing to ourselves. To ourselves, dear congregation. We stumble at our own sin and accuse Christ of wrongdoing and showing us mercy. We might say something like, How is it, Lord, that thou canst sit with me? Thou canst eat with me. I am far too wicked, far too bad for thee. Thou couldst never hold communion with a sinner like I. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. This seems very humble, and you've heard many people talk this way. It seems very humble. But it is nothing but pride. Nothing but pride. We should recognize our sin. But the purpose of recognizing your sin is coming to Christ because of it, not pushing him away. In short, the the Pharisees assumed Christ was like them, deceived in their self-righteousness. They assumed that the kingdom of God consisted in in, in excluding sinners. They assumed that the kingdom of God consisted in excluding sinners rather than wooing them into its halls. To ask such a thing as, how is it, in response to Christ's mercy towards sinners, is to misunderstand the very person and work of Christ himself. It is to be deceived into thinking that only those who are good enough, only those who have repented of enough of their sins, that only those who have towed the correct party lines have a part in Christ. It's to be, indeed, in a dreadful error, concerning the charge which Jesus received of his Father, that he should raise up all those which the Father had given him. John 6, 39. Our last point, number three, Christ's mission statement. We talked about Anselm's famous question last week. Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, the grumblings, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why did Jesus become man? Why did God become man? Why did Jesus come into the world? 
you will hear many answers, many answers to this question from every kind of person. But only one is correct, and it is the best answer. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we can all echo with Paul those next words, of whom I am chief. To the sensible Christian, the one most acquainted with his own heart and the truth of Scripture, the worst sinner that he knows is himself. Is himself. And even he might be saved. Even we can be saved. There is only one thing, as Jonathan Edwards liked to say, which we contribute to our salvation. The sin which made it necessary. Being a sinner, being a rebel against God, is the one thing requisite for salvation. That's it. The elect angels need not apply for salvation, for they have no sin. But us men, we are sinners, and Christ came for us. Now this flies in the face of so many in our day who want to return to Rome in one way or another. They wish it to at least be somewhat of a mix. Our works, a little bit of our works, a little bit of Christ's works, even if it's that Christ has the majority of the burden. He pays the most of the debt, and we pay a little bit. He does most of the good deeds, and we just do some. Even if it's just one, we have rejected the gospel. Such a view that we contribute some and Jesus contributes some to our salvation is not supported by the testimony of Scripture. There was an epistle, a book written that's in our New Testament canon to the Galatian church that was dealing with this very same thing. We've talked about this before, that the Galatian heresy, the Judaizers, really were very, very close to orthodoxy. They had one little thing off, one teeny little thing off. And Paul said they're anathema, accursed, forsaken Christ. Here's what the scriptures say in this book. Galatians 2.16, a man, Paul writes, is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you may not be as bad as you could be, but this is, in actuality, saying very little when it comes to the topic of eternal life. We must have perfection. Perfection. You cannot have anything wrong. You can never have done anything wrong. Or you will never see eternal life. And this perfection that is necessary is only offered to us, and that freely, through faith in Christ Jesus. There are some new Calvinist Reformed types that will say that we need to repent of every known sin, of every known sin, before we can truly say that we are saved. I don't even know how that works in practicality. Every day you should be realizing you're sinning. And they will say such things as, if you struggle with a sin, 
and then you repent of it, meaning you, you confess it to God, you ask for forgiveness. Maybe it's against a person that you sinned against, you ask them for forgiveness. And if you ever do that sin again, that shows that you never repented. And thus, you cannot be saved. Others will say that every time we doubt, we, or every time we sin, we should doubt our salvation. Taylor had a Reformed minister, a Presbyterian youth pastor, I don't know how that works, say that to him. That he tells his students to doubt their salvation every time they sin. What a weak savior. This is nothing other than a man-centered, man-glorifying, works-based salvation clothed in a thin garb of false reformed piety. That's it. Christ came for sinners. Jesus gave himself for sinners. Only sinners. And those who know that they are sinners can be saved. Christ did not come to reestablish the law, which had the power to save none, but only to further condemn them, but to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. And that on our behalf. Paul thought, the Apostle Paul thought, that it was his chief joy in life to view all of his righteous attainments as but dung, that he might win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, he says, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Seeking to be justified by the law undoes salvation itself, tosses it aside. Paul said this to the Galatians who had begun to mix aspects of the old covenant with the new. In Galatians 5, 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whoever of you are that would be justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace of none effect. Of none effect. In the law, in the law, is only a further unveiling of the depths of our sin. In Christ alone is its fulfillment for us. That's the only place we will find it. It was through the law of Moses that condemnation came. But by grace, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 Notice the descriptive parallel that Christ draws. It would be just as absurd, he says, for a doctor to put a patient on chemotherapy who was healthy and well and did not have cancer as for a man who was righteous according to the law to apply for salvation in Christ. If a man has no sin... He needs no Savior. Adam in the garden did not need a Savior before he fell. The Pharisees believed that Christ would come to serve those who thought themselves to be quite good in the sight of the law and to serve those who did not believe they needed a Savior from sin. In their mind, 
he surely would not come to fellowship with known sinners. Now, would he? They thought that the Christ could only have a righteous people, a righteous people to follow him, a holy people to follow him. They were, they were right. That's true. But what they failed to understand is that he should make for himself a righteous people by giving his own life for them, redeeming them from all their sin, making them righteous, and by purifying unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Titus 2, 14. Christ will have a holy people. And he does have a holy people because he makes for himself a holy people. Dear congregation, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. In this, he demonstrated his great love for us. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 So are ye sinful, dear brethren? Christ has come for you. This is all of the gospel. That Christ came to call sinners unto himself to repent from dead works unto living faith and salvation that is found in him alone. Free grace. Free grace. Not partially free. We have no other hope and no greater joy, dear congregation. Let us not think as these Pharisees in our passage did, but let us see Christ for who he is, the Savior of sinners, not the helper of the not-so-bads. Though we are sinners, we rejoice. We rejoice. For Jesus came for sinners. If we be sinners, we have much reason to rejoice, not because of our sins against God, but because now we have a salvation in Christ. For us, dear congregation, there is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8.1 The elect angels, I'll mention them again, who kept their righteous place shall never be anything other than servants. The righteous angels who held their space shall never be anything but servants. But by being sinful men who have trusted in the sinless Savior, we have been made children of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That's much better. If you think that you are too bad for Christ to save you, then you have missed the point entirely. Martin Luther said often, when he was in prayer, he would feel like the devil was tempting him, saying, see, look how sinful you are. Look how many sins you have. There's no way God could save you. And he would reply, I'm far more sinful than you know or that I know. But Christ knows all of my sins, and he's paid for each one by name and number. If you think that you're too bad for Jesus Christ to save you, you've missed the point entirely. If you think that you are too good to really need salvation... Well, in this case, you're only making your eternal dwelling in hell. You must first see the blackness of your sin, the hopelessness of your sin, the wickedness of your sin, if you ever hope of seeing the brightness of Christ's grace and salvation. Only when you see 
What a wretch you are. Can you, can you sing Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound. So dear sinners, fret not. Fret not. You have a God. You have a Savior in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again thank Thee. Lord, help us to be grateful and thankful for our salvation. Help us to apply to Christ daily and moment by moment. Help us to come unto Thee, our Lord and our Savior Jesus, our sweet, sweet Jesus, to find our all and all in Thee. Holy Spirit, grant us faith and apply this word to us throughout the rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.